Esther chapter 7. It says, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It will be granted you, and what's your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we, uh, we just uh, ask that our thoughts and our affections would be centered on you, uh, that you would be our sight, you would be our guide, uh, you would be what directs us through all of life, uh, that there would be a deep boldness in us to come before you and to make a request of our King, and there'd be a deep gratitude uh, that you have given us life, uh, that you have given us deliverance and rescue. Um, and today, God, as we uh, sit in your scriptures, uh, would you just be so kind and gracious as again to just grant life and grant peace uh, to all who are in here. And if you would take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to teach you today. If you'd be so kind, uh, pray for me that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school, just a few years back. It's, It's more than some of you might think, but it was probably not as long ago as I would like to think. And I had taken Latin in my freshman year and took Latin two my sophomore year because something in me was like, oh, I live in Texas. I don't need to learn Spanish. (laughs) I can ask you where the bathroom is and I don't know what you're going to tell me. Um, So maybe I should have taken Spanish. But my freshman year, uh, my brother was taking Latin and I kind of wanted to hang out with him. He dropped it like two weeks in. And then the teacher ended up leaving after our freshman year. And so I, as a sophomore in high school was taking Latin online and I had to have the self-discipline and gumption to like do my assignments and not sit at that computer for 50 minutes a day doing absolutely nothing productive. For about two weeks, I was like, oh, I'm going to teach myself Latin, you know, a language that people don't speak as a sophomore in high school. And about week three, week four, I was like, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. And it turns out the other couple students that were in there with me were kind of in the same boat of like, oh, we'll do it next week, we'll do it next week. Uh, the truth is, they ended up doing it next week. I did not. Uh, and about spring break, I realized that my login and username for our Latin coursework was just J. Yuri, my first initial and my last name. And it was like, interesting, my login and password is my first initial and my last name. And I have a... Uh, I have a roster of everyone in the class. I wonder if their password and username is their first initial and their last name. And it was. And uh, I had not done a lick of Latin since like week two, maybe generously week three of school in the fall. And come spring break, I realized there's too much to be done. And I formulate a plan and I figure out that... uh, I don't remember what her name was. There was a girl at some other school that was crushing all of her assignments. 
And I just logged into her account and started copying and pasting everything that she did into my own work. And all of a sudden, I went from being incredibly far behind to he got caught up in three weeks. This is incredible. He must just be a Latin prodigy. And there was no proctor over the class. I just sat in high school and copy and pasted all the Latin answers and finished out with an A. And then I went home for the summer. And uh, I was like, I'm never going to have to take Latin again, and I'm never going to get caught. Well, in Esther chapter 7, Haman gets caught. Haman's been uh, plotting the demise and the destruction, literally the annihilation of a people group in his empire uh, for months now. And he is about to pull it off. Like he's kept the thing under wraps. He's lied to people. He's schemed. He's bribed. And he's at the point where he's about to make sure that he's just going to be home free in this evil, wicked plan that he has been plotting and crafting to get his revenge uh, that we talked about last week on Mordecai is about to come true. And this deep secret sin that he has to just wipe out a people group, he's about to get caught in and he's going to get revealed. And so Haman's sin gets revealed and we see that Haman's sin cost him something because what we're going to see today is sin is always revealed. Your sin, my sin, that other person down the street's sin, like sin is always revealed and it always costs you something. So Haman's sin is revealed. Esther 7 opens up about 24 hours after the events of last week. So chapter 5 and chapter 6, Esther comes into the king to ask for a a banquet. And then she goes to the banquet and the king says, what do you want? Like what we read earlier. And you're expecting her to ask for the rescue of her people to like stop Haman and just save my people. And she doesn't. And she asks them to come to another dinner party. And so 5, 6, and 7 are about within a, uh, and even beginning of chapter 8 are within a 24-hour Period. It's a pretty packed day. And in Esther chapter 5, Esther goes to the king. Esther 6, Haman leaves the dinner party. His ego gets hurt, and he decides to expedite this plan to wipe out the Jews. And he wants to, to impale uh, Mordecai on a, a stick that is higher than any other building in the Persian Empire so that everyone can see his mortal enemy just hung on a cross, hung on a tree for everyone to see in all of the city to know that you don't mess with Haman. And then in verse 14, the last verse of chapter 6, we read, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And so the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what's your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. We talked about it last week, but the Persians were known for their generosity. If you did something uh, good for the king, he did something even greater for you. And when he's offering even up to half of his kingdom, he kind of really means it. Like, you're the queen. What do you need? Whatever you want, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And this is the third time now that Xerxes has said to Esther, what's your request? What do you want me to do? And the first time you're like, she's going to do it. She's going to save her people. And she's like, come to dinner. And you're like, What? And then the second time they're at dinner, he's probably a little, uh, had a few too many glasses of wine. And she's like, he's like, okay, Queen Esther, you asked me here for a reason. What's your request? And you're like, this is the moment she's going to save the people. Come to dinner tomorrow. What are you doing? And now it's the third time. You're like, sure, she's like, she's going to do it now. Like, there's no way, like third time has to be the charm. Verse three, and Queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people 
for my request. Now, if I'm Xerxes at this moment, I'm going like, I thought you were going to like ask for like me to redo your chambers or like ask for a new horse. You're asking me to save your life and your people? Like what, are you, like, what are you talking about? For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not yet to be compared, uh, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. So finally... <laughs> Uh, after three days of fasting and a lot of chapters of like, why isn't this working? She gets the moment and she makes the ask. And how she does it's like pretty smart and she's pretty wise. One, she doesn't blame the king for any of it. Uh, despite the fact that the king is the one that like said okay to all of this and like handed off his ring for it to be signed and sealed. Like ultimately the blame falls up to him and she doesn't go at him for any of it. She just states that her life is in danger. Second, she, she pulls at his emotions, right? Save your queen. Save me, the, the most beautiful girl in the land that you chose to be your wife and be your queen. Not someone random, not just the Jews. Save, save me. And when you're going to save me, save my people. Third, she, she uses the exact language of the edict to make sure the king knows that she knows. Like, she's not just pitching some far off idea of like, hey, I think I'm in danger. She's like, no, I'm in danger and I'm in danger because of being killed, de- uh, death, killing, and annihilation. And yes, I know that you know that now I know that you did this, but we're not going to talk about that right now, honey. Fourth, uh, she makes it about uh, her. She makes it about the king, not about her. Right? Her reasoning isn't, save my life because this guy's trying to kill me. It's save my life because the loss is too great for you. Like, he's not a great guy. Uh, he's, we, like, we saw that chapter one. Like, the dude's a drunken pushover. But she knows he's got an ego. And she knows he doesn't want to lose. She knows he doesn't want to, uh, he wants to save whatever honor and face he has. And she's like, don't do it. If not for my sake, do it for yours. She makes it about him. But then she brings up slavery. And it's just like, what? Like, Esther, what are you talking about? Well, on the one hand, we know, after the fact, reading the story, that Haman uh, had paid 10,000 talents of silver for the annihilation of the Jews in Persia. That this was a business transaction between Haman and the king. Haman paid to have them killed. We, we know that. He, 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 he paid to get an entire people group wiped out. But on the other hand, uh, one scholar pointed out that the Hebrew words for destroy and enslave are homophones. English lesson for the day. Justin, what's a homophone? I'm really glad you asked. I'm here to tell you. Uh, A homophone is this, according to Merriam-Webster. A homophone is one of two or more words pronounced alike, but different in meaning or derivation or spelling, such as the words two, two, and two. That's a homophone. Two, T-O, it's a preposition telling you where something is going. T-O-O is another word that means also or an addition. T-W-O is just the number two, but they all sound the same. They're all homophones. And in Hebrew, the word for destroy and enslave sound the same. And you can only determine its meaning by the context. So when Haman asked the king's permission to kill the Jews, but did so with an ambiguous word such that when the the king followed the request with a payment of money, the king would have naturally but mistakenly 
thought that Haman was requesting merely to enslave a group of people, not to destroy them. That Haman knew what he was doing. That he used a word uh, that he knew he could kind of craft and say quickly and move on so the king wouldn't think that Haman was trying to just commit genocide. That he was just trying to enslave a group of people. So of course Haman would pay him 10,000 talents of silver because he's buying a group of people from me to be his servants. Like this all makes sense. And the king has no idea or concept because he lacks the morality that Haman is actually trying to mass murder a group of people. And it's at this moment that if Xerxes wasn't confused, he is absolutely confused. Like, what? Like, my my queen, like, wait, wait, my queen's a Jew, and someone's trying to kill her, and someone's trying to kill all of her people, and I've been lied about for the last two months about what's going on in my kingdom? Like, what's going on? And he's so confused. And then eventually he's like, who did this? And it says in verse 5, Esther says, who, well, Xerxes says, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? And Esther says, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman, the Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Like just sit in that moment for a second. Like you're Haman, you're on cloud nine. You got invited back to the second private party with the king and the queen. You are about to just destroy your mortal enemy. You're one of the richest men in the kingdom. And obviously you're the most valued because you're at the dinner party. And you start catching up with, oh no, she knows. Oh no, she knows. Oh no, she knows. Surely she's not, maybe she does know the plan, but maybe she doesn't know it's me. Oh no, she knows it's me, and he's crazy, and he's the king, and he just found out I'm trying to kill his wife, and I'm sitting here eating wine and cheese. Haman's sin is revealed. Like the game is up, the plot's out in the open. Haman's evil, wicked, revenge-driven pursuit of sin is revealed for the king to see. And here's the thing about the reveal. One, Haman thought like he could conceal it, like he really thought he was going to get away with it. And two, Haman got caught. Haman thought he could conceal it, but Haman got caught. Haman concealed his sin. He's tried to cover it up from the beginning, like using an ambiguous word. He didn't tell Xerxes that he was even targeting the Jews. He's like, there's just a people in your kingdom who don't respect you. He did not write, tell Xerxes he was going to kill them. He didn't tell who it was. He concealed his sin and he did it for months. For months. From Haman's edict in chapter 3 to what's going on right now in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is two months and ten days time. He keeps the plot to annihilate the Jews and kill the queen. Secret. From the king who he sees like almost every day. For two months and ten days, he thought he could conceal his sin, but he gets caught. He gets caught in his sin. So Xerxes, after asking who it is and finding out that it's Haman, he leaves the party and goes into his garden to just try to calm down and figure out what's going on. And when he comes back, things get worse. Verse 8 says, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. We're not totally sure what fall on the couch means. Um, It could be 
well, if I can't kill all the Jews, I'm going to do what I want with you and then kill you. Or he is groveling and begging at her feet. One is evil and one is pleading for mercy, which is him pleading for mercy is ironic because he wasn't willing to extend mercy to the Jews. But either way, there was a rule in Persian culture where you didn't go, it's either six or eight feet uh, inside of the queen's circle. So the queen had a circle, six to eight feet, and you didn't cross that. And if you did, you're done. And he is at her feet, last ditch moment, just tell him it's going to be okay. Like, tell him not to kill me. Like, I'll give you whatever you want. And the king walks in and he makes some assumptions based off of some positions. And he was like, no more mercy, no more trials. They bag his head and they're going to take him off to execute him. He gets caught. And he gets caught red-handed. Haman's sin is revealed. He tries to conceal it, but he gets caught in it. And it costs him. And it costs him everything. Haman's sin cost him everything. It cost him his life. Right? Haman, upon having his sin revealed, has uh, his head bagged. And you know, imagine those black bag moments of any movie where someone gets their head covered in a black bag and then they take it off and you're like, they're never going to see them again. Like, it's just not going to happen. His head gets bagged and then he gets escorted off to get impaled on the big stick uh, that he had made to kill Mordecai on. And he gets hung up for all the city to see. Then not only does he die, but in chapter 8 opens in verse 1 and says, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told the king uh, who Mordecai was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman's sin cost him everything. Like he lost his life. But he also lost his house and everything he owned and everything he had worked for. His house is the, all, is the Hebrew all-encompassing word for all of his possessions. Literally his house and everything in it and everything he owned. His literal house, the stuff in his house, anyone who worked in his house, his bank accounts, his retirement account, his camels, his goats, his vintage nickel collection. It's all now Mordecai's. He lost it all. His life, his house, his job, his reputation. Xerxes takes the signet ring like, no, you're no longer number two in the command of the kingdom and I'm giving it to someone else. And then I'm going to just humiliate you in front of the entire kingdom to let the world know what happens when you try to cross the king. He loses everything. He loses his life, literally and figuratively. He loses his house and everything he's worked for. He loses his job, his status, his power, his reputation. It's all gone in an instant. Haman's sin was revealed and it cost him everything. Because that's how sin works. It promises everything, right? Just compromise, just give in, just cross the line a little bit. You're going to make life so much easier and so much better. It promises everything and gives you nothing and takes everything in return. Sin is always revealed and it always costs us. And as chapter 8 continues... Uh, we see that not only Haman's sin was revealed, but this sinful, wicked plan and this edict that's gone out to the kingdom is 
revealed. In chapter 3, Haman had a law passed in Persia that gave anyone in Persia the right, like the lawful right, to kill any Jew in Persia on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which falls between mid-February and mid-March, depending on the calendar year. They count dates funny, uh, but between somewhere between mid-February and mid-March. Anyone in Persia had the right to kill any Jew in Persia on that singular day. And Esther and Mordecai asked Xerxes to, to repeal the law, like just take it back, but he can't. Because any law signed with the signet ring of the king can never be revoked. It can't be repealed. It is in law forever. But what the king does say is take my ring and make a new law. I can't repeal it, but you can try to reverse it. And they do, and they reverse the edict. The evil of the edict is revealed to Xerxes, and the evil is, in a sense, reversed. Mordecai and Esther, they make a new law, and this new law is incredibly similar to the first one. Haman made one law, and uh, Mordecai and Esther make a second. And culminating in Haman's law, it said that any uh, Persian could kill any Jew on the 13th day of Adar. And now Mordecai and Esther's law say that any Jew can kill any Persian who tries to kill them on the 13th day of Adar. Just go read it this week. Read chapter 3 and read chapter, chapter 8. The mirroring is just incredible. But we'll talk about <clears throat> what happens on the 13th of Adar more next week. But here's the deal. The Jews are given the right to defend themselves on one particular day, in one particular place, for one particular reason. It's not a free-for-all. It's not a license for uh, the remainder of the Persian Empire. It's not, you can just go willy-nilly kill whoever you want. It's self-defense. If, and only if, there is a Persian, someone else in the empire, who is trying to actively take your life. On the 13th of Adar, inside of Persia, one day for one reason, one particular kind of person. It's not a war, it's self-defense. And this is read to the entire empire, which means anyone who is going, oh, I can't stand my neighbor because they're a Jew and I'm going to kill them, now knows they're going to pay. They, they don't have to do it. Uh, they don't have to go and murder their neighbor. But if they try to, they're taking their life in the balance. Why does the author include this? Because just like Haman, there are men and women all across the Persian Empire who have been planning to murder the Jews they live by. They just, they have been. And just like Haman, they've been secretly plotting and planning, concealing their sin. And by this edict, all of a sudden the game's up. All of a sudden, their sin begins to slowly be revealed. They're still going to have to wait till the 13th of Adar. But all of a sudden, the light begins to shine in their darkness and the plot is up because every sin is always revealed and it will always cost you. It will always cost you. So what does this mean for us? It means that our sin, not just my sin or your sin, but, but our sin will always be revealed. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, maybe next year, maybe years from now. But you can't keep it hidden. You, you may die with it, but someone's going to dig it up. 
They're going to find that box that you had tucked under your bed that no one looked in. Someone's going to get your computer after you leave work and they're going to go through it and they're going to find something. Not because they're just like looking for it, but because our sin is always revealed. Haman only kept his sin hidden for a couple months and he was close to getting away with it. But he doesn't. And he's second in the kingdom. Our sin will be revealed because no sin can be concealed forever. It may be in this life or it may be in the next, but trust me, the darkest things that we are trying to hide and keep hidden from people in Jesus will come to the light. Just think about your life and the people who you've seen fall. We've seen secret sins blasted over the news of politicians. We've seen secret sins blasted over the news of athletes and entertainers, of pastors, all people who had power and thought that no one would ever know. But eventually they get caught. And they're all the ones that say, I'm never going to be as stupid as the next person. But all of our sin is always revealed. And maybe it's not in this life. But Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. If Jesus is going to hold us to account for every off-color word we said in the back corner of a room, do we not think he's going to hold us to account for every off-color thing we do? Not just the things we say. Everything we do will be revealed. There is no sin, even so small as an unkind and unloving word that will not come to light. But how it comes to light, how it is revealed is up to us. It's up to us. We have two options for revealing our sin. We can confess it or we can be caught. Like, the, like those are the two choices. Like we can go of our own agency and volition and confess to the Father, who, by the way, is faithful and just to forgive us. Or we can be caught and have it brought in front of us either in this life or the next. You can confess your sin or you can be caught in it. And what's the difference? Well, confession is choosing to bring the darkness and the depth of your sin humbly and honestly into the light. It is you in, in all sense of the word humility, agreeing with God that what you've done is wrong and admitting that you've done wrong first and to God and then to others. Maybe not to everyone. You don't have to dry out your dirty laundry to everybody in the world. But the people that you've wronged, they deserve, they deserve a confession. So we confess first to God and then to those around us. And being caught is simply that. Someone finds you in your sin. Someone finds you. Someone exposes you in the depth and the darkness of your sin and your junk. And they drag it all into the light in the moment that was probably the worst for you. And while you will not come into the light humbly, you will be brought into the light humiliated. Because in your pride, you thought you could do what you wanted, when you wanted, with whoever you wanted, for however long you wanted. And you can't. And you believed the lie that no one could ever catch you. Your sin will be revealed. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even in this life. But when it is, it will cost us more than we think. Because we always minimize it. 
We always minimize it. Our sin will cost us. Every sin comes with consequences, and every sin comes with a cost. Like, there's consequences of sin, right? When, let's lighten the mood here for a second. If Kelsey asks me to take out the trash, and I go, no, I've got more important things to do, and go, oh, I'm going to think about my own needs and wants above someone else's, you know, Philippians 2, like, in real time, uh, that's sin. Like, that's, that's me loving me, me more than me loving my wife. She just asked me to take out the trash. Like, it's, it's just in the alleyway. Like, it's not far. Uh, but if I choose in that moment to do what I wanted to do instead of serve my wife and think about her needs and her wants above my own, then I've sinned. And about 15, 20 minutes later, she's going to come back to the trash can and she's going to probably politely say, hey, can, hey when, you, when you get to a stopping point, just benefit of the doubt, can you take out the trash? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then she comes about 20 minutes later. Hey, I, I'm sure you're really busy. It's overflowing. It's kind of starting to stink. Do you mind taking out the trash? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. And then eventually there's going to come the point. She's like, Justin, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know. Working on something. And no, it's not a dramatic relational break, but in that moment, we've gotten relationally off. Now, what do I have to do to get relationally back on? Confess that I was wrong. Yes, I was self-absorbed and being selfish, and I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I know I didn't really want to take out the trash because it's 90 degrees and I'm a princess. And then I take out the trash. The consequence there is minimum. We had a little kerfuffle. We had a little kerfuffle. And then you have Tiger Woods, who gets caught sleeping with other women and his whole family falls apart for several years. Very different consequences. Uh, my, my cousin, um, he ran away, like he broke out of jail, uh, believe it or not. He broke out of jail and I'm pretty sure uh, that he ran to Mexico for a while and then came back to Texas. And when he got found... He got put into a bigger jail because there's consequences for all of our actions. I didn't take out of the trash, and I had to say I'm sorry and then take out the trash. Cousin breaks out of jail, gets caught, and gets put into a bigger, more secure jail for longer. Like different levels of consequence. But every sin has a consequence. There's shame that comes with every sin. There's separation between us and the people around us. Sometimes there's suffering that we either have imposed on ourselves, or through our choices we impose on other people. But there's consequences to every single sin. First comes the shame of how dare you. Then comes the separation, not just from you and God, but from you and other people. And then oftentimes some suffering begins to enter into the picture because of your choices. There's consequences, and then there's a cost. The ultimate cost, right, According to the scriptures, it's all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the ultimate cost is eternal death and separation from God in hell. Your sin will cost someone. Like there is a price that has to be paid. But the good news of Jesus is that it doesn't have to cost us. Like there is a cost that will be rightly and fully paid. But the good news of Jesus is that it doesn't have to cost us. Your sin doesn't have to cost you everything. It doesn't. 
Confession, according to 1 John 1, 9, leads to life. And if you don't want your sin to cost you everything, it begins with confessing to the Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He puts it on the cross of Jesus and takes it off of us and out of our story. He takes the sin, he takes the shame, he takes the suffering to remove the separation that we might be one. And according to James chapter 5, confession one to another leads to healing. That when we confess to the Father, we find life, not just an eternal life if we've never confessed before, but we, like, there's this life that enters back into us because we stop living in the darkness and living in our sin and we get reconnected to the author of life. And when we're connected to him, we find life. But when we confess to one another, James says we'll be healed. Like there's something deep that happens inside of our souls when we confess to a brother or sister, when we confess to the person we wrong and we say, I did this. And this was wrong. That there's something deeply, emotionally, and spiritually healing that happens in our soul. That yes, we might have confessed it to God and been forgiven, but there's this shame that just continues to lurk on us. Because when we see them, we remember. Because when we see them, we know that things aren't right. Yes, we can confess and find life eternal and be forgiven for all of eternity. But when we confess one to another, we find healing in our souls. And you may be going like, but this, they're not ready for that. Or I'm not ready to tell them that. That's okay. Tell somebody. Tell someone you trust. Tell someone that loves you. Tell one of our pastors. Because you're going to find a level of healing in letting it out and in trusting someone and stop and ceasing to try to journey through this alone. You don't have to carry it. Jesus did that for you, and then he gave you us, and he gave us to you that we might carry one another and carry one another's burdens together. Confession leads to life, and confession leads to healing. It may mitigate some of the consequences too, but it doesn't always remove them. You might still have some consequences because of your sin in this life. We all make some bad choices that have ripple effects. But it's one thing to weather the ripple effects in the shame. And it's another thing to weather the ripple effects, knowing that our Father loves us and has forgiven us, and we're surrounded and being carried by a community that loves us. It's a different story altogether. And Jesus took the tree for us. Haman got caught in his sin and stuck up on a tree for the entire city to see. Jesus, who knew no sin, took the tree for us to become our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whatever you've done, whatever you've hidden, whatever you've never told someone, even God, one, he already knows Two, he already loves you. It was while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, that God sent Jesus to die for us. He didn't come and die for the cleaned up, perfect versions of ourselves. He came and died for the messed up, sinful versions of us. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
He already knows. He already loves you. And he's already put all of the sin and all of the shame on the cross of Jesus. There's not a transaction. There's not a penance. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. It's all grace. The separation can end. Not just between you and him, but between us. Because as much sin of mine that was put on the tree, there was as much sin of yours and the people that I've wronged put on the tree too. He took the tree for us. Our sin doesn't have to cost us everything because Jesus paid it all. And Romans 8.1 says, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's not standing up there waiting for us to confess so he can tell us how awful we are. He's waiting for us to confess so that he can say, yeah, I know and I love you and I paid for that. Come here. Let's get this right. Let's get it right. So my summer of my sophomore year, uh, after my sophomore year, going into my junior year, I was probably playing way too many video games. Honest. And going to youth group and not really remembering what we were talking about. And I just couldn't shake the feeling. Like they're going to find out that I cheated on Latin. They're going to find out that I cheated on Latin. My parents are going to be disappointed. I'm going to have to retake it. I don't even know Latin. So I'm just going to have to start like all the way back over. It's Spanish. Everyone in school is going to find out. Like I just started imagining all of the shame and dishonor that was rolling Justin's way. And in a moment of the kindness of God that led me to repentance, I ran into my parents' room bawling as a 16-year-old. Mom, I cheated on Latin and I don't know what to do. And I was like ugly crying at this point. So I was running, <laughs> like it, it, it wasn't cute. And once she calmed me down and could understand what I was saying, there was disappointment. But she didn't shove me. And go, how dare you? We're Yuri's. We're better than this. She pulled me close and she hugged me and she said, it'll be okay. I love you. But we do have to go talk to the school counselor. And so I went and talked with the school counselor and she was like, so Justin, why are we here? And she's very confused because I was like top of my class, the good kid. Well, the Latin class, uh-huh. Um, I cheated on the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, come again? The Latin class. Yeah, yeah, you and Wendy and, and this other girl took it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cheated on the whole thing. It was an online class you didn't have anyone to cheat off of. You're right, but I figured out everyone's username and login passwords, and I took the best kid in the class's work, and I just copy and pasted it into mine in about two weeks so I could be done with it. We went to church together. And she went, okay. Um, well, first, Justin, I want to say, like, I'm really impressed by your problem-solving skills. All right, I'll take that. Uh, she was like, second, when did you start cheating? Uh, about the week after spring break. And she went, okay. So what I'm going to have to do is I've got to talk to the course group and everything that um, was supposed to be turned in from spring break on, you're probably just going to get a zero on and we'll have to see where you land at the end of it. And I went, oh, okay. Just imagining Everyone finding out and having to take Latin again, and that was, I don't want to redo that ever in my life. And about three weeks later, I get called back into the school, and she sits me down and says, Juan, um, I'm really proud of you for saying something. 
Most people won't do that. And two, uh, it turns out, based off of their waiting, uh, everything that was due after spring break versus everything that was due before spring break, uh, they decided to give you zeros for everything that were post-spring break, but to grade everything that was before spring break. And it uh, looks like you got like a 69.5. So congratulations, you 